Support for Yagni is provided by Flipper Cloud. Are big launches stressing you out? Then you need feature flags. Flipper Cloud helps your team deploy the code now and then roll out features when you're good and ready. Get started for free at FlipperCloud.io. Today, I'm joined by Nate Berkopek, a web performance consultant at The Speed Shop. In his free time, Nate enjoys cycling and reading flame graphs. Redis is a key value store that's often reached for as a critical piece of infrastructure for background queues, caching, and pub sub. But in a world of use the right tool for the job, what is the purpose of a Swiss Army knife? We discuss whether or not we need Redis in our stack and also touch on the NoSQL hype cycle, the false illusion of progress, and how GitHub actively harms open source projects. Welcome to Yagni. So we were chatting earlier. You had posted a tweet that I thought was kind of interesting recently, which was about Redis. And you said that Redis is not faster than your SQL database. It's just different. It's usually under less load. It's a key value store, not relational. So looking up simple things can feel faster, but it could also be fast if you used Ash Index on your SQL database. It's not magic. It's just different. And this kind of kicked off an interesting discussion on Twitter, and it got me really thinking about Redis and where it exists in the current software stack and kind of got me questioning, is it still something that we need? Are there better tools for the job? What was the impetus for you tweeting this? The impetus was a pretty common problem that I see in applications when I come in to, to look at them. And it's this strategy of using Redis hash to paper over the cracks of SQL access. So I'll see things that look like rails.cache.fetch do user dot some complicated query or something like that. And on the strategy level, there's usually a few problems with that because usually the hit rate on these is really low. Like almost, I don't know why this is. At the same time, they'll always have some cache key which has 20 different parts to it. And so it's invalidated like every time you try to look at it. So like the hit rate on this is like 10%. And so it wasn't really doing anything anyway. I think it's this interesting window into what people are thinking at the time. Because they're thinking like, I see Redis used in such a way when like this, you could have just used SQL here, like just made the SQL access not be so terrible, right? And instead there's this reflex to reach for Redis and, or in this case, Memcache, whatever. And uh, yeah, it never works because why am I getting called, <laughs> right? If it worked, they wouldn't have called me. But uh, yeah, I think the tweet was funny because the comments were sort of validating my original perspective because it's like, well, Redis is in memory and SQL reads from disk. And it's like, no, it doesn't. If you go ahead and look at like any, it doesn't matter what SQL engine you're using, Oracle, MySQL, SQL Server, Postgres, whatever, all SQL databases have a read cache. And if you look at your statistics for that, you're hitting that read cache 99 plus percent of the time. So 99% of the time, SQL access is in memory, just like Redis is. And yeah. so kind of like right there, you've already hit the high level point of like, well, Redis is, it's fast because it's in memory. And it's like, wait a second, that's not actually true or like why it might for be For reloads. Why, yeah. yeah, for read. And I think a kind of point also just reminded me of the like old... Gary Bernhardt tweet about you bring someone in to solve big data problems and he says like your data fits in RAM and you can just pay $10,000 for RAM. And I looked it up before hopping on with you and you can now get two terabyte SSD for 
a thousand bucks for your Mac server. So it seems even a moderately sized database, you could put it on an SSD and with a read cache, you're doing equivalent performance to the fast in-memory lookup that you'd be getting from Redis. Yeah, exactly. I actually just had my first ever client in eight years of doing this a month ago that had bigger data, like actually what I thought felt was like big data in a SQL database. This was like a five plus terabyte database that was growing. I think in two years, it probably would have been like, they're getting like five terabytes a year at this rate. And I was like, yeah, you are actually encountering write load issues now. And the amount of data in this database is, is a lot. <laughs> and backups and like, you're having trouble with the followers keeping up. That all starts to become a problem. But I do think people underestimate that thresholds like we're talking multi terabytes here where that was and it was only starting to become a problem for them at five terabytes like it was still livable i had another tweet last night where i tweeted like here's what i think are different thresholds for what defines what web scale is is it a thousand requests per second is it ten thousand because i do have one of the nice things about being a consultant is you do get a very wide and shallow slice at what everyone's doing so i think part of where i can be helpful in my Twitter is to share like some of that experience and okay, well, do you have less than one or two terabytes of database? You don't have big data. This shouldn't be painful in terms of data size yet. Yeah, I think that's like super valuable too, especially it feels like, and maybe it's just like the little algorithm bubble that I've accidentally put myself into, but I see all the time people talking (laughs) about running compute on the edge and serverless and these like extreme performance mechanisms for and like the context that they're brought up in is in like the tutorial app for a new javascript stack and i'm really confused because like on one hand i'm like am i out of touch or because <laughs> it's like i've never or like, all the kids am i out of touch or all the kids yeah. wrong <laughs> i mean it's like when you talk about like edge compute i'm like are you talking about that microsoft browser because it's not something that i've encountered before and so <laughs> on one hand i don't work on these big systems so I think like it is really valuable to hear some of your takes for like, it's hard to know, like you said, like, when do you get to the big leagues or when do you need to reach for some of these tools? Edge computer is actually one thing I'm actually very interested in <laughs> because I haven't found a, a great use case for like where to slap it in yet. But I think with any new technology or part of the stack, I think you should ask yourself, like, what does this enable that I couldn't do before? Right. And ultra low latency responses straight to a client from anywhere in the world is something that was not possible before we had CDNs that were willing to sell us computers in their points of presence all over the world. And that's what Edge Compute is. They're saying, we have servers, we have Cloudflare has 50 pops all around the world, and we will sell you rack space in these for a very specific type of application, right? It's all JavaScript. You got to follow all these rules. You got to do this and that, but we'll sell you the compute time and you get to be 10 milliseconds from everybody in the world. As a performance geek, obviously, that is very cool. But then it's just an application developer. It's well, 10 milliseconds is great. 200 milliseconds is like still mostly imperceivable. And I'm adding complexity. So, yes. And then I was going to say is as an application developer, you have to be skeptical of the hype cycle because what the hype cycle does is it says this technology is really cool. And everybody has to use it for everything in the future. (laughs) And I get really frustrated with not the hype cycle, really, but I think sometimes people's perspective that technology in the web space is like sort of this like linear march of progress where it's like 
each new thing that gets released is like a better superset of the last thing. And we just are like in this linear march of history towards the better web stack for everyone. And I don't think that's true. I think the durability of Rails over the last 15 years that it's been really popular has shown that you need to pick a technology stack that matches the problems that you're trying to solve. And a lot of problems in web applications have not changed in 15 years. Some things have, and for those things, we should use new technology like compute on the edge. But for creating a create, read, update, delete application for your healthcare benefits startup, yeah, Rails is still as good as it was in 2008. You got to pick technology that matches the problem, not what matches what's popular right now. I think you and I both have lived through some of these different waves of, of progress, right? And it's, I think it's a great point because the benefit that web engineering got from jQuery versus the before times of jQuery was like a big step. And But then each march of the jQuery to like the backbone era and then like the backbone to the Angular Ember era and then like into React and now into SvelteKit and Next.js and, and all this stuff, it does seem like there's probably like a curve there that people assume, like you said, is linear, you know? I don't want to use that. Those are like Gen 1 JavaScript frameworks. I need like a Gen 5 JavaScript mm. framework. Especially when we're talking about taking the same problem and using a new solution to do essentially the same thing, but in a different way. It's not great. That is zero value added to the customer. Your customer doesn't care whether or not your app is written with Angular or Vue or React or I don't know, whatever. Your customer doesn't care. If your app does the same thing and it took you two years to rewrite it in your tech stack, you just spent two years not delivering value. I was kind of trolling the JavaScript community when the whole TypeScript DHH thing went down and about some different stuff. And I just remember feeling like this JavaScript community feels like they seem to think that the library churn there is like a sign of progress. But again, it's like to me, all these libraries are doing the same thing, particularly from the endpoint of the customer. So what progress is happening there? No one can feel the difference between a React 18 application and first generation Angular application. No one customer could like do an A-B test on that for you and say, oh, this is the Angular one. This is the React 18 one. That just doesn't exist. So what were you doing? <laughs> what is the value you're delivering? It reminds me a lot of some of the anti-patterns from like Agile where it's like, oh, now we have all these tickets and we ship all these tickets and let's look at how many tickets we shipped and abstracting the delivery from like the value. I think that's what a lot of these tool churn is like, oh yeah, we upgraded our app and like yeah, that was the yeah. accomplishment. Like well, that was we're, four we're, points. <laughs> right, right. That was four points or, oh, we're running live on the latest thing in production on our four apps. That's good. And I think there's definitely a tendency, I think, for engineers to want to be evaluated based on those types of metrics versus ones that maybe feel more outside of their control around like business outcomes or customer outcomes where at the end of the day, I think engineering is important in getting those outcomes, but there's oftentimes other things in the way of you having that direct value. And I think honestly, that feeling is probably what drove me into performance work originally because performance work is a measurable outcome that works in a way that can't really say, oh, this feature that I shipped is a 
customers think it's a five out of five or something. There's no like score that, that tells you how valuable that feature is. But with performance, you've got a number. And as long as that number goes down, everyone is happy. A app that loads in one second is better than an app that loads at two seconds. And so I was drawn to this idea that oh, I could just do a bunch of work and write a bunch of benchmarks. And as long as I keep making this number go down, people are going to like it more. So I sympathize with that frustration. It's part of the reason why I got into this. It's probably fair to say that performance work has higher return than framework churn work in terms of an improvement to the performance, like you said, has some measurable benefit. One has direct customer impact and the other doesn't. Something you mentioned earlier was dealing with the hype cycles. And I think it's interesting to bring it back to Redis because it feels like Redis is a technology that came up in one of those big hype cycles and actually had staying power. Because remember like the aughts, the mid aughts, there was like the whole NoSQL craze, right? And so that's where we got things like Redis, MongoDB, and I think those are, I would say, probably the only maybe memcached, if you want to throw that in there, as technologies from that era that stuck around. And there was a whole bunch, you know, I don't find people that are like using React anymore, which is like this like weird ring database. Oh, yeah. Or, wow. Yeah. Or Last Neo4j. Or yeah, like that was a big one. Like, yeah, all yeah. social networks will need like a graph database. That's nostalgic. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. So like, that I goes think, back to that point we're talking about with progress later, right? Are we yeah. all writing applications with Neo4j right now? No, but it felt like no. in 2014 we were. Right. Oh, you don't have Neo4j experience? You're going to be severely hampered in the job market. So I think in one way that is like a benefit of or something to praise Redis for is that like it did sort of come through the ringer of that and like is still being run in production today. I think probably it's because Redis is remember the original branding of Redis was around, it's like a Swiss army knife. You can do so much stuff with it. I'm not sure that that branding is still there anymore today. I went and looked at the website and Redis is described as an in-memory data structure store that can be used as a database cache or message broker. But I, I think in practice, it's kind of like used as this general purpose kind of weird data store. And I know like in Rails, you can use it for processing background jobs. You can use it for cache. You can use it for serving messages through your action cable WebSocket coordination locking like application locks if you don't need like resource locking stuff and i definitely feel like redis stands alone from those other technologies because it it is more versatile obviously a graph database is going to be great for querying graph structures but if you don't have a graph shaped block to put into the graph shaped hole then it's not going to do anything for you these days yeah redis has a lot of really and this is why my tweet said it's not better, it's just different. There's a lot of really interesting characteristics that make it a good choice for probably where it's most used in Rails applications as our background job store. When Sidekick inserts a job into a queue with Sidekick, there's three Redis commands that get run. And each one of those is O of one. So no matter how big and how long your queues are, inserting a job takes the exact same amount of time every time. That's super, super powerful. If you're inserting thousands of jobs per second into queues that are millions of items long, you really care about that kind of performance. And that really is not going to be the case for relational SQL database. If you're inserting jobs into a jobs table, you've got 100 different threads inserting on that table and the table gets really long. I think we, if you've done web development long enough, you've gotten to that scenario and you realize everything kind of grinds to a halt. So that 
is it makes it a really interesting and appropriate choice for a background job store. But on the flip side, it's also was like designed, and I think you just said the word ephemeral there, as something where you keep data that isn't really that important, right? And then we've all written background jobs that are like bank transaction dot debit, right? And you're like, okay, well, I sure hope this doesn't get lost. So there's trade-offs with every technology choice. And you got to learn Redis. You got any technology you operate and put in your stack, you have to understand. And now you've got a new database. You've got a new technology. How many times have I come into shops that didn't really understand that Redis was single-threaded? Like you have to understand how Redis's single-threaded design works as it scales versus like a SQL database where you could just add more cores. They scale very, very differently. And so now you've got all that headroom to think about. So again, it's not better. It's just different. Yeah. I think it might be interesting to share like my own recent experience that got me to start sort of questioning Redis in our stack. And I work on a a B2B SaaS application and we're nowhere near like web scale or any of that stuff. We're still talking less than hundreds of requests per second. So we're not really fighting any scale issues that we can't solve by hitting the Heroku dino slider. Changing configurations, adding sliders. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing that got me sort of questioning Redis was we went to upgrade sidekick and there's an issue in the latest version of sidekick where it needs some newish version of redis and we found that like our redis which was hosted with redis labs which is the official provider they're the sort of corporate entity behind the open source project they're sort of lagging behind and like upgrading their own offering and so fast forward now it's basically been a year since this issue cropped up and we still like are unable to like upgrade sidekick without changing our hosting platform. It's like a bigger bite than we were looking to do. Hey, we want to upgrade our sidekick thing. It's like, oh, well, first to do that, you have to migrate your who's hosting your Redis. And I was like, wait a second. <laughs> so I think wow, that, I wasn't aware of that situation. Yeah, that seems pretty it, weird. I can understand how it happens. And it's certainly not like the job of sidekick to handle that. But and I guess it's just happenstance that we happen to pick this provider. But I think that was sort of coming up in confluence with this other thing that you sort of alluded to with background jobs and how durable are they? And it seems like the first thing people inter- encounter Redis in a Rails app would be for background jobs or like webhook processing. And well, I think the sort of prevailing advice is that you probably want a database record for some of that stuff anyways, whether you need to handle tracking status or you want more persistent log that like, hey, we got this webhook message, it got processed, or we sent this important background job to run payroll on your bank account. It sort of got me thinking, if we need database records for these jobs already, are we better off using like a queuing system that is backed by a database? I know there's old gems for this and there's newer options like Good Job is coming out and it looks like 37signals is set to announce their own database-backed queue here at Rails World. Kind of curious like your take on that of if the primary use case for Redis is for Sidekick, we feel like that's still a good default recommendation. I think it's going to depend on the level of write load. Sidekick does a very good job, and Mike has put a lot of thought and a lot of customer experiences with Sidekick into making Sidekick scale to very, very high jobs per second loads. I have not yet encountered a company who can say that they scaled out of Sidekick. So you can go pretty far with that. And again, it comes down to that 3.0 of one design. Inserting things into Redis 
into this queue is really fast. So the flip side of that is, is if you're not inserting a thousand jobs per second, does that really matter to you? Are there other features um, such as not having to run a new data store or the durability, like acid, basically acid guarantees? Right. Or even being able to query using active record, like the status. Yeah. And inserting jobs in Sidekick is ON of one, but like um, O of one, but the querying of what's in your queues is definitely not. So would you rather work with Redis's lookup commands in in the queue or would you rather just do whatever you wanted with active record? I think that answer is pretty clear for me. Yeah, I think it's also interesting too, and maybe this is too in the weeds, but I'm curious like how the performance characteristics of those operations change once you start layering in things like uniqueness or concurrency things where you want to be isolating jobs based on tenants or things like that. Do you find that those performance characteristics are still hold generally or is that something where like maybe we're not enqueuing a huge quantity of jobs but like our jobs have extra checks around oh if your account is on this tier then we're going to run your like processing at this speed things like that yeah this is one area that i try to steer people away from if they can avoid it both locks which is what you're talking about with concurrency control and unique jobs impose a lot of additional redis load depends on the implementation but the unique jobs will add three to five commands per insert on Redis queues. And so I already told you the default was three. So you've just doubled your Redis load. And the locks and concurrency control, generally that stuff is so heavy, you're better off running it on a separate Redis database from the one you're putting your background jobs onto. So these kinds of things, again, kind of coming back to like how Redis is a single threaded design, every additional Redis operation that you add to a transaction, the Redis database is like effectively kind of like down for everyone else while those transactions are taking place, right? Because there's a single thread here. So it's not like it's doing work in the background while this other operation, these operations that you added are being processed, right? So you have a limited amount of time to do all these Redis operations. So it's very important that they're really simple and really fast, which is why Sidekick's inserts are designed that way. So when you start to layer this other stuff on top, which gets more complicated, there's more commands that have to be executed. They don't scale nearly as well as just inserting jobs does. So I tend to tell people to avoid using unique jobs and concurrency locks. And honestly, to do those in the relational database instead to use locking in the database because 99% of your jobs are going to be pulling an active record model out anyway to use locking on those rows to ensure item potency to ensure that you don't need a unique job because it doesn't matter how many times this job gets run you, you know it's item potent or honestly for concurrency control to just have separate queues so Instead of having one queue with 10 different ways that it needs to check if it's running too concurrent or not, instead of doing that, have 10 different queues and then use, you know, okay, this queue is only being processed by this single sidekick process with five threads or whatever. 
And I know there, there will never be more than five of these running at a time because that's all I've set it up to run. That's a much, much more scalable solution than using database locks if you can manage it. So I think the other benefit that Redis has is that because it is so versatile, I think you can use it for lots of things, especially in your Rails app. And so I think maybe we can nitpick like each individual use case and say maybe there's a better tool for the job. Because I know one of the other reasons that people will have Redis in their stack is for something like Action Cable, which is where you use Redis to sort of do your like pub-sub management. And certainly you could probably do something with PG Listen Notify. Maybe that's not so good. There's other options in at least the Rails world. of You could run any cable as kind of a separate process. But I think the fact that you have Redis probably already, either for Sidekick, for caching, won't pretend that lots of people have it for Credis, but it seems like that's kind of like the selling point of Redis in the Rails stack is that you can use this one extra data store for this handful of other things. Yeah, it gets back to what I was talking about earlier about minimizing the number of technologies in the stack because you can't optimize what you don't understand and each new technology you add you're going to understand it less than what you currently have. So most applications are going to use a cache, a background job store, and it would be cool if you could just use the same technology for both of those, right? I mean, no one's going to be like caching in their, you don't cache in your relational database. So you need something there and you could pick memcache, but it's, well, then if I'm going to not use my relational database for my background jobs, well, now I have three technologies. I've got memcache, Redis, and my relational database. And that is obviously not great. So I think it's definitely got a lot of use there. That's what it's good at. That's the Swiss army knife, That, like you said. The fact that you can interact with Redis just in HTTP call instead of a direct database connection, I think does open up some interesting opportunities. For instance, I know that there's a new web application firewall product in, in the Rails world called Wafris, and that uses Redis to store like a list of IP addresses that you're sort of banning from your application. And they were speaking with me and they, they said that it was nice that they could use Redis because lots of other frameworks and languages that are maybe similar to Rails, but you know are not in Ruby, use Redis as their stack. So you could see them being able to support like a Laravel application or a Django application cool. because these communities, they're also running similar Redis instances. And, and so they have that going with them. Yeah, to be clear, you're you're generally not going to be running all these different use cases on the same hardware. We're not talking about saving hardware here. You're not going to run your cache and your background job in the same Redis database or even on the same machine, the same instance, but you are using the same stack. And that knowledge of, okay, I know how Redis database works. I know how to scale it. That is the knowledge that we're saving on here. I think that's actually like an easy to miss point for people to... Because I think a lot of times we just see, oh, I need to provide the Redis URL like environment variable. And people are just using the same one maybe to hook in Sidekick and the caching and your like action cable connection stuff. And very quickly, I think running out of memory or like you said, it's not how it's necessarily intended to be used, but I think it's maybe not so clear. Well, this is the classic mistake with Sidekick and Redis. And now there's a warning about it, but there wasn't always. But You know, at Redis, you set the eviction policy at the database level. So the eviction policy by default 
if I'm, I'm trying to remember now, what was the way this used to go? The default Redis eviction policy is based on TTL, volatile TTL, I want to say. So any key that has a TTL set could get evicted. But basically, like for a cache store, you want an eviction policy that says anything in this cache can be evicted. Evict the things with the oldest, least access TTLs first. And then in Sidekick, you don't want to evict anything for any reason. <laughs> Nothing never should be evicted out of here because this is like important stuff that I want to do in the future. So keeping those two things in the same Redis database is just a recipe for pain once you eventually run out of storage. And that's the whole point with a cache store. A cache store, you want it to be running at 100% storage utilization most of the time. But with Sidekick, you definitely don't because you're going to be missing jobs, right? So there's two very different purposes there that and as I mentioned earlier, with Psychic being single-threaded, there's a lot of scalability to be gained in base, essentially sharding different loads to different machines. And so keeping your limiters on a separate database, keeping your background job on another database, keeping your cache over here, that means that you've got now three single-threaded databases instead of one, which I don't know if you can do math, is three times as scalable. So yeah, we're talking about like stack knowledge and not saving on resources necessarily here. That's just something for people to be careful of because I think there's probably a tendency for people that are like, oh, I'm trying to build this app sort of like on a budget or I'm on Heroku. Like, how can I get away with not paying for another thing? And it's like, oh, well, I have a free Redis instance. And suddenly, like you said, your background jobs are mysteriously getting evicted and that would be a huge problem to debug. Yeah, luckily there's a warning for this in Sidekick now when you start up and if it's set to the wrong eviction policy, it'll yell at you. But yeah, that was not always the case and I had to fix a lot of those. Nate, Redis, do we need it? Yes, but <laughs> I don't wait, let me think about how I want to answer this. Redis, do we need it? Man, that's it's a, a good... tough one. Yeah, I think I was leaning toward no, and I will probably after our discussion go yes. And I think the kicker for me is that because it can be used in so many situations, it's probably worth investing like as a skill as a developer to like know how to run and like you said, know the characteristics of Redis. I think that seems like there's enough use cases that you'll run into that makes it worth it. If you are using background job processing, or doing background job processing, and you have an expectation that within the next five years, you're going to be doing more than a thousand jobs per second, you should use Redis. If this is a slow growing hobby project or a solo dev project, the growth is much more sustainably slow. Maybe a database back queue is a better choice for you. Or maybe if you're writing people's bank balances, maybe don't use Redis. But I think it's still a safe choice. There's a reason why Sidekick's the most popular background job processor for the last 10 years or however long it's been around. And it's certainly not Neo4j. I don't think Sidekick uh, nor Redis are going anywhere. No, they're not. I'm a little interested to see what happens this fall in the Rails world because 37 Signals has, I guess, never used Sidekick and never used I don't Redis think for their cues. Shopify has either. So that's two of the larger Ruby installations not in the Sidekick camp. Yeah. I'm not sure. Do you know, as GitHub, do they use Psychic? I don't know what GitHub's using. I want to say probably not using Psychic. One of the concerns, and this is not related to Redis, one of the concerns for like when you get to uh, Shopify GitHub scale is the 
demons of multi-threading start to come out to play. And so like these mega shops, the whole reason you would use concurrency, right? Multi-threading is to save on resources. And basically at that scale, they decided that we'd rather spend more money on extra instances rather than deal with the potential gremlins of like a concurrency bug. So they just say, all right, we're not going to use concurrency in this stack or multi-threaded concurrency in this stack. So that's not really related to Redis or the data store choice there. Right. I think it'll be interesting because it seems if we include 37 signals in Shopify, you know, we'll leave pending for GitHub, but it seems like the major contributors to the framework are sort of moving in this direction of having like database-backed job queues. And so I think it'll be interesting. It looks like that there's going to be something announced at Rails World that is a new gem from 37 Signals that is kind of their spiritual successor to Rescue. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's Rescue because I think they're on MySQL as well. But yeah, so I think that. And then I think it sounds like at Rails World, we'll also be seeing some new disk based caching stuff. So I think it'll be fun to watch and see if Redis kind of gets squeezed out of the blessed vanilla stack. Yeah. Like we've been talking about for the last hour, it's horses for courses. And I think the more opportunities we have to slim down our tech stack in terms of sheer number of technologies, definitely the better. So would like to see people from that scale of company try to wrap their head around solving these problems of what, like we talked about some of the problems that come with applying a relational database to background job stores. And then more choices, the better. It's interesting when the ultra high scale and the like small and starting tooling can converge. It's nice to say, hey, I can take this all the way up until, like you said, hundreds of thousands of requests per second and thousands of jobs per second. When I'm just starting off and I'm doing 10 jobs a minute, I can still use the same tools. And as long as the overhead of getting up and running with those tools is not so high, then it's kind of like the ultimate sweet spot. Yep, exactly. Cool. Well, I really appreciate you making the time. Do you have any other spicy hot takes you want to get off your chest an hour into a podcast about an esoteric key value store? (laughs) Yeah. Open source maintainers don't owe you anything. Yeah. Interesting. I know that has been kind of a hot topic, at least (laughs) when we're talking here. Yeah, that's my hobby horse and I'll ride till I die, man. I really don't care what anybody thinks about what an open source maintainer should or shouldn't do, man. They owe you absolutely nothing. So any take that starts with open source projects should, must do this, get out of here, man. I don't care. (laughs) I don't care. Someone has given you an absolutely free, 100%, no strings attached gift. And that is where their obligation to you ends. Yeah, I didn't really care for the sort of current discourse about that too especially things like i think if we get into specific examples people were worried about oh there's so many open pull requests to a project that could be like nullified that to me it was just kind of like whenever i've opened a pull request and even if it's sat there for like years i never felt like oh the upstream project has some kind of obligation to make sure that my unsolicited pull request is semantically versioned or something it's just very weird to me it all comes down to expecting maintainer labor. So like when you open a pull request to an open source project, are you entitled to the 30 minutes to an hour of review that pull request is going to take to get it into this project? No, you're entitled to nothing. We're all doing this for free and 
we're doing this for various reasons, but none of that is for money. So you didn't pay anything and you're entitled to absolutely nothing of, of another person's labor without that compensation. So I can get a full refund for what I paid, which is nothing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and everybody engages with open source differently. I think some projects have a more community-driven approach. Puma is certainly in that camp. Puma is, I call myself a maintainer, but I'm not a maintainer in the traditional sense of like the person that writes 80% of the commits to this project. I'm a maintainer in the sense of like the traffic director for the pull requests coming in and keeping the project on track and consistent with the vision of what it's supposed to do. But every non-Rails project from 37 Signals has always been like this. It's always been basically a gift that they're saying, hey, this is something we use. This is the code we run in prod and you're free to use it. And that's amazing. So many cool projects and things have come out of that. Turbolinks being like the first one in my example, my head. But they've made very clear that the terms of that gift are you get to modify it in a lot of different ways to fit your use case. They've made very clear that scope of community contribution is very narrow for those non-Rails projects. Turbolinks has been rewritten like three times now. So this is like the fifth time that they basically declared PR bankruptcy on the Turbo stack. And so it's not even surprising that this has happened. So yeah, you're not entitled to anything. And 37 Signals is not required to maintain a project in a stack they no longer use. I think there's an interesting situation that happens here where you can have open source projects with the same license, but vastly different, like you said, expectations or governance or any of that. And I think if you want to get really spicy, it's a failure, I think, of GitHub to properly elevate like a contributing.md or provide tooling to say, hey, you know, an MIT licensed project is not an MIT licensed project everywhere when it comes to community contributions, right? It's like the legal license is the same, but you can have vastly different experiences going into a GitHub page, but repositories look the same. Like the pull request interface looks the same. They both have a counter on the top that gives some people anxiety and some people don't care at all about. (laughs) Yeah, maybe you could go a little bit further. I think it's a failure of GitHub to more radically push forking. And I think a lot of times... What we think of as an open source project is really a namespace. It's really the person who sits on the Puma slash Puma namespace on GitHub and the Puma gem name on rubygems.org. And in general, in open source, we've really failed with being able to improve the discoverability basically of a forked project and to relate like we've got the official Puma, and then we've got Matt's Puma over here. And it's basically Puma, but he changed a few things here and there. And it makes it harder than it has to be for moments like this TypeScript removal in in Turbo, where if you want to go maintain your own type to JS doc Turbo, go do it. But there's really no good way for the rest of the user community to migrate to that. And they should be able to. I think my ethos of open source is, is a free association and free cooperation. So if people really hate not using TypeScript that much, I think we should do a better job of taking all those people and directing them to a different project. And we don't do that. 
I think people sometimes overlook like the structural externalities that exists of, like you said, like Ruby gems doesn't have namespace gems. There's just yeah. the gem. So if you want to say gem install Puma, you have to be installing, like you said, like the Puma slash Puma. If you want Matt slash Puma, you can certainly do that. It's supported in Bundler, but I think even like the developer experience of it is like, oh, you have to kind of opt into doing that. And it sort of is like reminding you that, oh, you're like running off of a different branch than the main one. I think in some ways, I know like in the JavaScript package ecosystem, things are namespace like that. I don't think that necessarily solves it because you do run into, you know, you've highlighted of like Puma slash Puma and like Rails slash Rails. I think that still holds a lot of weight in people's minds of, am I running some forked version of this thing? But I think like even that does help a little bit. If it was as simple as saying, oh, switch from Rails slash Turbo to TypeSafe Ruby slash Turbo or whatever, I think that would sort of, like you say, make it more realistic to say if you don't like it, fork it. Yeah. I think you're getting at like the danger of forking there is like, so let's say you fork Rails. The reason why Rails is a powerful thing is because it's got 20 of the best Rails developers in the world working as core team members and contributors. And when you fork that, you're starting over on that. It's, it's Matt's Rails. It's just Matt, right? Raphael, no Eileen, it's Matt. All of these conversations about how open source maintainers should act are basically trying to extract free labor in a particular way that we want out of these people. Forking is hard. So instead of doing the hard thing, we'd rather do the easy thing and guilt these people into doing what we want. And that's what really grinds. That's what really grinds my gears <laughs> is that's where that's coming from. It reminds me there's like a Nassim Taleb-ism around the golden rule is treat other people the way you like to be treated. And that sort of implies that you have the same values that like people want to be, oh, I should treat people the way I want to be treated because the way I want to be treated is the same morals and principles that this other person has. And so there's a corollary to that, which is the silver rule, which is don't treat people the way you don't want to be treated. <laughs> sure. I think it's difficult because I don't think any, you know, 99% of the developer community will never have the experience of maintaining a popular open source project. So it's very difficult to have empathy for that situation. And so you're thinking as a customer, which is a way you're used to thinking, but you are very much not in a customer relationship with an open source maintainer. That's not what's well, happening. You can tell that to my SOC 2 auditor. Thanks for listening. You can find show notes and links at yagni.fm and find me on Twitter at underscore Swanson.